We find ourselves back here in Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to read for us from back at the beginning in verse 3, and read to the end of the chapter down to verse 23, because it all goes together. We've been talking about that even in our study together. This all just is one flow of thought in the Apostle Paul's heart and mind, so that we might, in fact, be growing in Christ. And so what Paul says in verses 3 through 14 are followed by a prayer to or for the Ephesian believers and really for every believer for their growth in the Christian life that is based upon an understanding. In other words, Paul's prayer is is so that we know and understand all that which is learned in verses 3 through 14. So because we'll be spending our time just in the final verses of this text tonight, I want us to have this entire section just in our minds as we think through this together. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, so that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Let's just go before the Lord in prayer as we begin our time. Father, thank you for your servant Paul that is serving us by the inspiration of your spirit that we might hear these things and we might know these things in order that we might live by these things. Thank you for the wonderful and magnificent truths that we have already studied in this passage and how that grounds us in the understanding of who you are and all that you accomplished on our behalf even before time ever was to begin. And how in your Son you redeemed us and forgave our sins on the basis of his righteousness. And that through that, you have granted us faith that we might believe in him and by faith have eternal life. Guaranteeing that to us, you gave us your spirit so that we might not be discouraged, so that we might not doubt, so that we might know that we are indeed your children. And so, Lord, I pray that we would understand these truths, that we would fully Understand all that you would have for us so that we might live just as you have commanded us to live and equipped us to live. So use what we hear tonight to encourage that, to stir that, to stoke the fire within us that we might be like Christ in every way. I pray to your glory in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You don't have to read a whole lot of the New Testament to see that much of what is written here, specifically by the Apostle Paul, is focused on all that is to come, the future, what is ahead of us in glory. Certainly when we read the New Testament, there is much to say about death and Much to say about burial and resurrection, particularly that of Jesus Christ. In other words, the work of Christ that provides the way for us to be saved from our sin is spoken of much in Scripture, but none of that, none of what we hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior makes any sense without the reality of His future return. To have a dead Savior makes no sense. If Jesus Christ was still in the grave, then we of all people, as Paul said, are most to be pitied. And so the return of Christ is simply to say that the salvation of our souls makes no sense unless Christ is going to return one day and by His divine power, through that power, subdue his enemies and subject all things back to the God of all glory, God the Father. This is why I believe we as Christians resonate with the words of Revelation 22, verse 20, that says, come Lord Jesus. Right When we hear those words and, and our heart resonates with those words, we are crying out exactly what the Scriptures declare and desire so badly that Jesus Christ would in fact come. So we as Christians, as those who are the living church of God here on this earth, look forward to the day when Christ will secure for all time and in time His final victory. 
We survey our world. We even heard a little bit from even Krista Nine and just a mention about the world in which we live, and it seems to be going farther and farther and farther down the rabbit hole of of debauchery. And so we long for the final victory of Jesus Christ all the more. And it is to that reality that the Apostle Paul turns to in his final request to God for these believers. So the return of Jesus Christ, the reality of Christ's return. Now, in our study, you remember that Paul has already prayed for two other realities for them. In verse 17, he says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In other words, Paul is saying, here is what I'm praying for you. In light of all that God has done for you, here is what I am praying for you. I am praying so that God may give to you a discerning heart, a heart that understands the things of God so that you may know Him. Know Him. And then he tops that even more so in verses 18 and 19 and says he prays that their eyes might be enlightened to know, enlightened to know, and he lists three realities there, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So Paul says, I want you to know God. You're saved by God. You have this magnificent blessing from God and you ought to be eulogizing God on behalf of all that God has given you. And I want you to know God and by knowing God, you might know these other realities fully. You say, why? Why why would Paul ask for that? Why would Paul recommend that before God, in his prayers to God, his heart is bursting out with thankfulness to God for these new believers. Why would he ask for this? Because Paul understands that when we grasp these truths, when we understand these truths, you will live for Christ in all things. When we grasp these truths about us, we will be in our lives like Christ. The bottom line is, Paul's saying, I'm praying for your growth. I'm praying for your growth. I'm praying for your sanctification in the Christian life. And I'm praying that growth comes through knowing God. Knowing God. Not just in salvation. I want you to fully know. I want you to experientially understand what God has given to you. I want you to experientially understand the hope of His calling. I want you to experientially understand the inheritance that you have in Christ and the inheritance that you are in Christ. I want you to understand that fully in the heart and mind of God. And thirdly, I want you to understand the exceeding greatness of His power. It is on this third reality that I want us to spend our time tonight. Because we've already looked at the first two. We looked at the first two prayer requests, and and tonight I want to look at this third, this final one. Because I, 
I, with the Apostle Paul, want us to understand at the outset that the Apostle Paul is not so much praying that believers might be given power by God. He isn't praying here when he says, I want you to, to, to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, as if we are, as if he wants at the outset to know that we are, uh, that we need to be given power by God, but rather that we might know the power of God that is already working in us. That we might fully and experientially understand that as Christians, we have the power of God working in us. Sometimes I think we either don't realize that, forget that, or just totally don't ever think about it. Now you look at verse 19 here, and I don't believe it to be the best translation here in the New American Standard when it says that I want you to understand His power toward us who believe. The word toward us seems to indicate something when you read it in that kind of language in the English here, that it is something outside of us. I want you to understand the power that God has toward us as if it's outside of us that it isn't with us, and yet the preposition here used is better translated as in, in the context. In. Paul knows that God is sovereign in saving His people. He has already said that clearly. The overarching reality of verses 3-14 through clearly show us that Paul knows that God is sovereign in salvation. There's no other way that you and I are saved except through the sovereign plan of God. He knows that. And he also knows that God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Peter wrote that in 2 Peter chapter 1, and yet Paul understands that same reality. Paul could have written those very same words right here. And here is the Apostle Paul with that in his heart and mind, and he is praying that we will understand just what it is that God has given to us. Paul knows it intellectually. He even knows that we know it intellectually, but he wants us to understand it. Why? So that we might live as we ought to. So that we might be assured that we are in fact what we are, the children of God. And so he prays that we might understand what is the surpassing greatness of his power in us who believe. And I think the Apostle Paul is simply praying this because when we understand that kind of power, when we understand the kind of power that God has given us in us, we will not get defeated in striving against sin, in striving for holiness. We will not sense defeat in the here and now. When we understand that and when we live by it, when we access it. Sometimes our problem with victory in the sin in our lives is simply because of access. Not that we don't have the ability to access that power, but because we just simply don't access it. Now I've already shown us that the Christian life is one built on knowledge. One built on knowledge, right? It begins with knowledge, right? We hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even Paul says this. 
for this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you, right? You you heard the gospel. You you believed the gospel. It began with knowledge. That's why Paul prays this way. He prays that these believers in Ephesus would know God better. That's a knowledge word, right? Verse uh, 17 I pray that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So it isn't separate from God. It isn't some esoteric wisdom or esoteric revelation whereby we hear things from the mystical world separated from God Himself and separated from Jesus Christ Himself. No, it is a wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of Him so that they might know exactly what God has done. So this hope that they have, they might fully understand this hope in which God has called them into, so that they might know the riches of the glory of His inheritance in them. And now He wants us to understand the incredible power in us who believe. And so we understand that being a Christian is built upon knowledge. But that knowledge is not simply an intellectual reality. It is a practical reality also. And this is the distinction that I want to make here tonight. Knowledge is not simply intellectual. It is practical. In other words, and we use these phrases all the time, it's not just head knowledge, it is heart knowledge. We use it not, sometimes that's not what people mean by that, but That's what we mean by it. It is not just intellectual knowledge, it is practical knowledge. And we need to be careful in understanding this because sometimes we we get into the rut of being academic Christians. Sometimes in in our walk of Christianity, we become so academic that we reduce our Christian life to just rules and philosophies of life that are merely academic. We become what oftentimes happens in evangelicalism, and we use the Bible as a moralistic tool rather than the avenue through which we know God. This becomes a moralistic book. It becomes a book of rules and regulations and opinions and philosophies on which I, I follow my life by, I live my life by that, but it's merely an academic exercise. Sometimes we think of the Christian life as if we're just ensuring that we know Bible doctrine. Right? We think if we know the Bible doctrine, if I read enough about doctrine, if I think about doctrine, if I can explain doctrine to others, if I, if I can know the nuances of the differences in doctrine, then I'm living a good Christian life and I don't need to do anything else. As long as I can explain the nuances of that in some kind of academic fashion, I don't need to do anything else. And if I'm an expert in Christian thought, and if I'm an expert in Christian ideas, and if I'm an expert in some kind of Christian thinking, then I'm a mature Christian. In other words, if I'm an intellectual in the truth, then I'm good to go. That's not what we need to be thinking. Obviously, we're here tonight and we understand that. We're not to be thinking that. That is not what Paul is saying here. 
as important as knowing sound doctrine intellectually is, Paul didn't write verses 3 through 14 so that we would have this grand understanding of the doctrines or the mysteries of salvation in some intellectual sense, and that's where it is. As important as that is to understand all the nuances that are carried out here in verses 3 through 14, Paul wrote that so that we would do it, so that we would live by it. So as important as doctrine intellectually is, if it doesn't translate into knowing God better and thereby living in His power and being victorious over sin in this life, then it is meaningless. You can know the Bible intellectually all you want. You can memorize all the Bible all you want. You can know the nuances of doctrine and be able to explain those all they will, all you want. But if it does not translate into your life being lived out in a Christ-like fashion, being lived out in victory over sin, then it is meaningless. What do you know? You know nothing. But we understand this. We understand without, that without the power of God, none of us would be Christians. We understand that. It took God's power to save us. The salvation of the soul is the resurrection of the dead. We need to think of it like that. I was thinking about that this morning, even in Sunday school classes. Al was teaching, and we were talking about all the repeated words in Genesis chapter 1 and all the things that are going on there and the attributes of God on display and the reality of the power of God to make something from nothing. Resurrection power of God, that God could take nothing and form it into something. Salvation of the soul is just that. It's resurrection from the dead. And in the same way, without God's power, without God's power, not one of us could ever have victory over sin. I hope we understand that. And every victory we have over sinfulness in our life has nothing to do with us inherently. It has everything to do with God's power. We cannot live a godly life. We will never ever be with God in the glories of heaven if it is not for God's power accomplishing that. And it is by this power that we live our Christian lives day by day. So the question that I want us to think about tonight is what power is this? What power is this? And then just in a secondary fashion, but just as primarily, how do we access that power? Well, what power is this is really answered simple from this text. It is resurrection power. It is resurrection power. Notice when Paul says, I'm praying that you might know God and His power in you who believe, there is no greater display of God's power than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no power on earth that could accomplish the resurrection. Thinking about even beginning our time tonight with the question, what do you think is the greatest power ever seen? I thought about asking that question at our time as we were beginning to begin our time tonight. Maybe I should just ask this question. What is the greatest power ever seen without ever introdu introducing any of our text tonight 
to see the kind of answers that we might come up with about power. And oftentimes, if not most of the time, we think about power in light of this earth and the things that man can produce or the things that even God does through the power of his creation in storms. And in fact, we saw some of that power even today as he was allowing the rains to pour on this place and the winds to swirl. But I dare say that not many of us would have come to answer that question with this answer, that the greatest power ever seen in the world is the power of the resurrection. Why? Why would we not answer like that? Because far too often we see it just as an event of time. Far too often when we look at the resurrection, we see it just as something that happened in the past. It was an event that took place in the past rather than a display of God's nature and character and the very power which we have by being linked to Jesus Christ. And we need to think of it like that. It is not just a display of God's nature and character in times past, but it is the very power that we have in us by being linked to Jesus Christ through faith. Remember, Jesus had predicted that God would raise him from the dead before he was ever arrested, before that time ever came on that day in Jerusalem when he was arrested he said he would be arrested. Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34 are these words. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. and They will condemn him to death and will hang him over, hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And that was Jesus Christ prophetically saying exactly what would happen to him on this earth. And so from an earthly perspective, that kind of statement from a person seems rather ludicrous. It seems impossible. You will rise? Because throughout the annals of time in our mind and in the history of our life, we see men live and we see men die. That is what we see. In the great obituary chapter of Genesis 5, the words, and he died, stand out over and over and over and over again. That is the stark reality of the plight of mankind. They are born, they live, and they die. Death is inevitable. Death is the end in the physical world, the end of all men. And yet Jesus says that after he dies, he would return to life. Beloved, only the heavenly power could do that. Only God's power can do that. And we know from Scripture it was heavenly power that did it. Scriptures clearly tell us on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead just like he said he would. And God the Father proved that Jesus' claim was true. 
And in that proof, in that resurrection, God himself was declaring that Jesus' death was the satisfactory sacrifice for sin, that sin's payment was paid for all who would ever believe, and therefore all who are united with Christ by faith now live victoriously. We can live in victory over sin through that same power. You and I don't have the right We don't have the God-given right to us to say, when sin is tempting us, I can't do it. We don't have the right to say that. That I can't overcome it. And so we can simply think of the resurrection as a picture of our own resurrection. Our own future resurrection, certainly that is true. It is going to be a future event in which we will be raised, but it is not simply at the end when God's resurrection power will be on display as if we are raised to be glorified, completely changed. That's not when we will see the resurrection power of God on display. No, the power of God in the resurrection of Christ is to be seen in us right now. This is what Paul is saying to them. I want you to understand. I want God to open your minds in fully knowing Him so that you understand the surpassing greatness of His power in us who believe. The power of God, the resurrection power of God is to be seen in our Christian lives now as we exercise walking by faith over sin. The only way we're going to overcome it. In the commentary by Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones on this passage, he says that there are three things we battle. Three things. Listen this way worldliness, that's one thing. The flesh, that's another thing. And then the third is the devil, that's what he says. I found that interesting, so I continued to read and I thought it'd be good for you to hear what he says. He says this the world. The world constantly bombards us with its values. We get them from television and from newspapers and films. We get them from the competitive world in which we earn our livings and from casual conversations. How are we to be victorious over this great enemy? It is by the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is this power that is able to transform us by the renewing of our minds, as Romans 12.2 says. It is what makes us, 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creations. It is the resurrection power of God, the very reality of the power of God that we see on display in the resurrection of Jesus Christ where He laid in the grave and He was brought back to life. That very same power of God is in us and it is the very thing that transforms us as our minds are renewed and made us into new creatures in Christ. It is that very power by which we overcome the worldliness around us. He goes on to say the second great adversary is the flesh, which in biblical language means the nature of sinful man untouched by the Holy Spirit. The flesh is a formidable enemy, he says. It draws us in inactivity when we should be reading the Bible, 
when we should be praying, when we should be doing good works. It locks us into sinful patterns of behavior when we should be living a Christ-like life. And then he asked that question, how can we triumph over these strong forces? Some of us may be here tonight asking that very question in light of what we have already heard about worldliness and now about the flesh. How can I have victory over those kinds of things? The onslaught of the world outside that's around me at every turn that I turn up and the onslaught of my own flesh and the sinful patterns of behavior and, and laziness. This formidable enemy that is around me. How can I triumph over those forces? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's only by the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The same power that God has used His power to bring the dead to life is the very same power that brought you to life in Christ and it's the very same power that's in you to overcome the deeds of the flesh. And then he says, thirdly, is the devil. Many people, even Christians, regard the devil almost as an invention or at least as one at whom we may laugh. He said, but when Satan met our first parents in Eden, it was no laughing matter. They had been created perfect with not, not even a disposition to evil. And yet when Satan appeared, so great were, were his power, his wiles, and his subtlety that it was only a short time before he had brought about the fall of both Adam and Eve. Thus did sin and death pass upon to the human race. He said, no wonder Peter writes this way in 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. No wonder Paul said to the Ephesians, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, because of these things, we need to be enlightened with respect to the power of God working in us. Nothing else can enable us to stand against the wiles of worldliness, and the flesh, and the devil. I think Lloyd-Jones was right. If that's what we battle against, and all of us here I think would resonate with exactly what he said, we battle against all of those things, and sometimes we don't think we're battling against the devil, but it's the devil that's behind all of those sinful realities. If this is what we battle against, then we must know that it is Christ's power in us that overcomes them. It is Christ's power in us. The resurrection power of Christ that overcomes them. And we might be even sitting here right now tonight doubting, doubting, I don't have the ability. I can't do it. And I don't want us to doubt. Neither does the Apostle Paul. So Paul says in verse 20 and 21, notice this, right? Here's verse 19, the surpassing region. I want you to know this. I want you to have this experiential understanding of this. The surpassing greatness of His power to us who believe. These, 
these. What, what is the these that are there, even though these isn't there in the original language, but it's placed there by the translators to make the reading simpler? It's talking about the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, and the great power. These things are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, whose might? God's might, which He brought about in Christ, verse 20, when? When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You notice in verse 21, he mentions power, different kinds of power, four different ways. The rule, the authority, the power, and the dominion. Those are all four different ways of just talking about power at different levels. Christ's power is above all other power. That's the idea. Resurrection power has no greater power. The power of the resurrection, the power that God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power that is above all other powers. It was brought about in Christ. We are linked with Christ. When God raised up Christ, we were with Him in that resurrection as we will see in chapter 2. We were seated with Christ as Christ was seated with God in the heavenly places far above, notice, all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, not only now, but also in every age to come. Listen, Christ's exaltation, beloved, far above all rule, all authority means that there is no power, earthly or heavenly, that can win. There is none. There is no higher power. And so Paul wants us to know as Christians that in the context of our struggle in our daily lives to be godly, in our struggles to live godly lives, guess what? You have the power to overcome. You have resurrection power. You can't say, I can't. Not legitimately, because you have the power that is in Christ. What power? The resurrection power that was in Christ that is far above any other power. There is no power above it. You can't be thwarted. You can have victory over sin. The Bible teaches us that we struggle. Right? We struggle not simply against flesh and blood. It teaches that we struggle even, Ephesians 6 verse 12, against rulers and against authorities and against powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what Ephesians 6.12 says. Our battle is not simply against flesh and blood, the things of worldliness and our own flesh and those kind of things, but it's even against those things in the spiritual realm that are powers well beyond our earthly power, and yet we have the power of Christ in us. 
I mean, you read verse 6 or verse 12 in chapter 6 and think, well, if that's the kind of powers I'm battling against, then I'm done. I can't win. It's over. And yet here, Paul is telling us, I want you to understand the power, the surpassing greatness of the power that God has given you. You have the surpassing greatness of His power in you who believe. It's resurrection power. There is no greater power. It is the same power that God used and exercised to raise Christ from the dead and seat Him at the, in the heavenly places at His right hand, the, power, the, the ruling spot. And it's far above anything that you will ever battle against, any rule or authority or power or dominion. All of that is speaking of the schemes of the devil and his minions. That's all it's speaking of. The things in which Satan spins out there that tempts the flesh, the worldliness that's out there. And yet here, Paul is saying you need to understand that you have all been made subject. All of those things are subject to the risen Christ. All of those things. He is above everything that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And... Notice he put all things, verse 22, in subjection under his feet. Listen, if we understand anything about the universal reality of the word all, we need to understand there that all things means all things. That it's everything. There isn't anything outside of that. All things have been in subjection under his feet, and we are in him. That means in a in a spiritual sense, and being in Christ, that all those things now are in subjection to us. They cannot be overpowering to us. So when we are told that Jesus has been exalted over them, you and I in our Christian's lives don't need to doubt if we can have victory over any struggle. We need to understand that we have the power for victory. We have the power. Now the question is, how do, we, how do we access that? How do we access? How does that victory come? How do we access that power? We're not going to study this verse in full, but I just want you to turn over for a moment to the book of James. Because here's how we access it. We have the power, it's clear. We've been saved by God's power. We've been resurrected to life with Jesus Christ. We have faith in Christ. We have the power of God living in us. We can have power over the things. Well, how do I access that power, Pastor? How do I get it? I mean, when I'm struggling, how do I have that power? How do I overcome? Here it is. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There it is. You want to access the power of God? You want to have victory over sin? Then submit yourselves to God. So we have in us God's resurrection power. We have the power of God in us. There is nothing more powerful than the resurrection power of God. And we access the use of that power simply and only through submission to the Word of God. You want to have victory over sin? Do what God says. 
Some of you are saying, Pastor, you could have said that back in the start and just closed in prayer, we'd have been done. Right? James says, submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. In other words, don't try your own power. Don't live by your own power. Don't live by your own thinking. Don't live by your own ways. Submit to God. Bring yourself willingly under what God says. But wait a minute, if I do that, that's the hard road. That means it's going to be trouble for me, potentially trouble for me. And yet here is Jesus, our example, the one who died for the sin that we committed, that he never committed, the one who entrusted himself fully to the one who judges righteously, always doing what is right before God. And God, by his grace and by his care for his son, allowed his son to go through heinous things in order that you and I might be saved. Jesus always did the will of the Father, and it was the will of the Father at times that life for Him would be hard. Sometimes we pray to God, God, take me out of this mess. I don't want to be in this mess. I get it. Listen, I I know I prayed those words. And God in His loving care and kindness for us doesn't take us out of the mess. And it hurts, and it's painful, and it's a struggle. And God says, just submit to me. Do what I'm asking you to do. Follow me. Trust me. Submit to me. Paul is saying to us here, submit to Christ. You want to have access to that power, submit to God. Just follow what he says and you will have victory. You will have victory. The wiles of the devil will have no tempting effect on you. In fact, notice over in chapter 3, verse 20, what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We love that. God is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. We think, oh, God is more powerful than anything. He could do anything he wants all above and beyond anything. Well, how does he do it? He does it according to the power that works where? Within us. Within us. So Paul says, do you understand what you have? Do you understand what you have? Do you understand who you are in Christ? What God has done for you? Is it any wonder that Paul begins verse 3 with those words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that he says that? Because everything he writes after that is showing the wonderful, miraculous way in which God has equipped us to live like Christ. He says, do you understand what you have? God in Christ has given us everything. So Paul is praying, praying that we get a good understanding of this power. That's why he says in verse 20, it's the same power 
in which brought about the resurrection of Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand and gave him rule over all things. He says, look, look, you may question whether you can do it. When life gets hard and things start to struggle and you're having difficulty, you may wonder if you can have victory. But Paul says, look at this. In the same power that raised Jesus Christ took from the dead, it's the same power you have in you to overcome and to submit to God. In the case you're worried about whether or not God is going to be able to come off with what He promises you, whether or not God's going to enable you for victory, you doubt that, just remember He did it in Christ. He did it in His Son and He'll do it for you because that power is still the same and you are intimately linked with Christ. Beloved, God never abandoned His Son. He never abandoned His Son. He isn't going to abandon us who are His body, the church. Notice what he said, and he put, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that is Christ, all things are in subjection to Christ, and he gave him as head over all things, right? He is the head over all things. He gave him as head over all things, the one who's over rule, has power, dominion over everything. He gave him, Christ, as head to the church. That's why he adds that little phrase, which is his body. Right? The church isn't this building, the church is us. We are the body of Christ, and God gave Christ, who is head over all things, he gave him as head over all things to us, his body. So that we might have the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, God wants us as Christians, as the body of Christ, to be the fullness of Christ in this world. That's why He empowered us. He saved us. He empowered us. He gave us Christ as, his, as the head of us. He has equipped us with all that we need for life and victory. We can't say can't. In fact, over in chapter 6, Paul ends this letter beginning in verse 10 this way. Notice what he says, finally. Here's the last thing I want you to know. Finally, after I say all that I'm going to say to you, here's what I say. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Okay, great, Paul. I'll be strong in the Lord. That's great. It's a nice sentiment. And in the strength of His might. And a might is that, it's resurrection might. That's power above all powers. We have His might. And that's why Paul says, then put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against worldly forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and to having done everything to stand firm. So stand firm, he says. Stand firm. How? 
having girded your loins with truth, right? You know the truth. You hear the truth. You read the truth. You're saturated with the truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the outworking of truth in your life. Put on your feet the preparation of the gospel of feet. That's the truth personified and worked out in your heart and life as you share the truth of the gospel with others. In addition to all, trust it. Take up the shield of faith. Believe it. Because that faith, you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. All the temptations that come your way say, no, I'm not going to do that. Just like Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil is tempting me, he says, listen, the word of God says this. That's what I'm going to do. Take up the helmet salvation. Understand your salvation in Christ, that you're secure in that. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You have everything you need in the Word of God. Trust it, do it, and pray. Pray for the saints. Beloved, this is how we have victory. This is, this is where it starts. Paul says you, you can have victory when you understand who you are. Now, now live who you are. How great is that? How great is that? I mean, we have been changed by the power of God so that we might live according to the power of God as we reflect Christ in this world. We have it all. And we're not going to gain victory any other way. And, and just like in a jewelry store, when you go buy, to buy your, your spouse a diamond they always wanted they drop it on the backdrop of a black piece of felt so it shines so brightly there even though it's a rock the diamond of this truth never shines brighter than on the backdrop of what we once were the reality of who we are shines brightly on the backdrop of who we once were and that's where Paul turns in chapter 2. That's how he starts. And you were dead. You're alive. Resurrection powers you. That's not who you used to be. You were dead. And so we'll look at that next time we're here. By the way, it's going to be about three weeks because... Next week, there's no evening service. The week after that, there's a baptism. The week after that, it's communion, prayer night. So, so by the time we get here, we'll have forgotten everything, and I can just go back to the start. No, I'm just kidding. But we'll get to chapter 2 next time. This is great truth for us, beloved. Wonderful truth to understand and to know. We can live for Christ. We don't have to and should not be saying, I can't do it. We can do it. We have resurrection power in us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this understanding. Thank you for showing us this truth tonight so that we might never believe in our minds and our hearts that we don't have access to it. Father, most of the time when we fail, it's simply because we choose to not submit. We just refuse. It's too hard. It's easier to not. Lord, help us to submit to your word. Help us resist through our submission so that we might live for you. You deserve it. 
you who are our Savior. We could not do it without you. So thank you for resurrection power. Thank you for living in us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself, saving us, and making us alive in Christ. Help us live to your glory knowing, not just intellectually, knowing experientially as we submit to you that we have your power in us. We'll give you all the glory. You deserve it. Praise your name for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.